good afternoon, early afternoon. I'm John Dukamp, the president of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, and your primary uh, moderator for today's cerebral massage uh, there. And uh, we'd almost like to ask for a show of hands for anyone who's been to all their conferences in their adult life where the uh, telecommunications, the microphones, the sound systems have worked without blemish, seamlessly, no uh, difficulties whatsoever. So here we are in the, the mainstream of reality of uh, a country uh, and uh, a world that's had telecommunications technology uh, being uh, invented, uh, developed for 90 years now. Um, you think we'd uh, have it down pat and all one would have to do is press a button and things would go well. I'm trying to be a, a little humorous uh, there and, and, and a note of, of humility as well. Uh, but no, with, uh, with all of our sessions, um, our vision is a, uh, a firmer foundation uh, of the U.S.-Arab relationship than has ever been the case than is presently uh, or is likely to become unless enough good people uh, work uh, diligently, uh, full-time, uh, to make that happen. It won't happen by accident or coincidence. And we're one of uh, several sister organizations that are dedicated. We're laced with conviction, and we have our commitments that uh, are educational, they're procedural, operational, administrative, programmatic, uh, laced with activities and programs and projects. Uh, and inventive ways to try to find uh, new, different, more effective ways uh, to strengthen and expand the positive aspects of this relationship. We liken ourselves metaphorically to a river, and, and a river that's rolling and that uh, confronts a rock or a boulder in the stream uh, does not stop and idle at the intersection or hit the reverse pedal. It keeps going. It goes over, it goes under, it goes left, goes right, uh, but it doesn't stop. And, and this is um, the way we perceive uh, what we have been doing, what we are doing, what we will continue to do. We're fully aware of the obstacles. Uh, they come with the package, and this is the reality of the reality. Uh, now, the particular region that we're focusing on this afternoon is one that for many Americans still, uh, they are seen as uh, gas stations. They're not seen as countries uh, in the proper sense of that word. Uh, they're also seen as uh, mountains of money uh, rather than the heirs and the descendants of an extraordinarily rich culture and civilization uh, that has enriched uh, world cultures and civilizations. Uh, most Westerners and Americans in particular go to the higher education and they read about something called the Dark Ages, uh, or euphemistically the Middle Ages. Well, they were dark for Paris, they were dark for Rome, uh, they were dark for London, uh, but there were streetlights in Damascus, streetlights in Baghdad. And we're talking about eight uh, centuries, uh, four times almost uh, as long as America has been uh, a nation in terms of U.S. history, uh, where uh, Arabs and Muslims have been uh, contributing to technology, to language, to pharmacology, to uh, philosophy, to navigation, uh, to astronomy, to chemistry, 
uh, and especially to business and the private sector dynamics of people in pursuit of enhancing their material well-being. And if one looks at the American Constitution, or most constitutions, regardless of the difference in words, uh, there are four objectives that most countries' governments are assigned to uh, pursue and achieve and accomplish as best they can. One uh, is uh, domestic security, uh, without which one cannot plan, one cannot protect, one cannot have any meaningful life from a qualitative uh, perspective. The second one is uh, defense uh, from would-be outside external predators who are jealous, envious, and would love to trade places with you and take uh, any of your assets and resources if they could uh, possibly succeed in doing that. And the third is the one that we're focusing on today, and that is to enhance the material well-being, uh, the standard of living, or enable people better to meet the cost of living than would otherwise be the case without uh, concerted effort. And the fourth one is the administration and existence of an effective system of justice, uh, without which uh, no one uh, can proceed with self-confidence or communal confidence that they're doing the right thing in the right way for the right reason, the right time, the right people, and inshallah, the right results. Uh, in these sessions, uh, we try to uh, contribute uh, a considerable body of information that is otherwise hard to come by. I mean, you can read and read and read. It can be a news uh, junkie and still not come across the kinds of facts and figures and statistics and information that our three specialists today will offer and share and contribute to this uh, session. And without such uh, enhanced, enriched information, uh, we're only off in terms of our insight. And unless we have the requisite insight, uh, policy making is going to be uh, uh, ber uh, hardly bereft of blemish and a decision making uh, stalled at the intersection there. But those two are not enough because they, in turn, are essential to knowledge. And uh, knowledge is, is vital in this area. But let's not confuse knowledge with understanding. But knowledge, information, and insight are essential to achieving understanding. And yet, between knowledge and understanding, there are at least three things that for most Americans are rather elusive, but less elusive as a result of a session like today. And these are empathy. And Americans uh, have been accused of being uh, empathy deficit in comparison to other people's cultures and societies and countries. And the second, of course, is education. And this is uh, the National Council's mission in, in one word. And the third uh, between the two, knowledge and understanding, is experience. And uh, these individuals, uh, and myself, and uh, just the four of us up here have more than a century of experience of grappling with many of these issues and trying to make a difference and sharing what uh, we learn and benefit from with others who've been less privileged, less fortunate, uh, to have this information, insight, uh, knowledge, uh, empathy, education, and experience uh, en route to understanding. And if we succeed in these uh, quests, and uh, many of us here have gotten almost that far, or just that far, 
uh, then the likely prospects are we will have a strengthened, more effective uh, capacity for critical reasoning, analysis, and assessment. Uh, and uh, this is what we seek today. Uh, and even if we achieve that, we will probably fall short of wisdom. Uh, but we're making the effort. Now, these uh, three individuals uh, come from the region. Uh, they have more experience than any of us, or all of us in the audience uh, combined, because they live there. They grew up there. They're from the inside. And yet they've lived and worked on the outside, and they have obtained all of these uh, facets and uh, features and factors and phenomena that I've mentioned that are so critical uh, for the enhancement of uh, sharpened uh, uh, analysis uh, and assessments. Uh, we're going to start uh, with a, a gentleman uh, from Qatar, and then we will proceed uh, to Ms. Kalud Al-Dukail. Al-Dukail family is almost a household word uh, to many of those who've lived and worked in Saudi Arabia and know the economic uh, dynamics of the country. And then we will shift to Islam uh, uh, Bouleba, uh, who's, uh, in addition to his investment in business uh, uh, dynamics and education and experience, uh, has served uh, three terms in Saudi Arabia's uh, Council, uh, Majlis Ashura, its National Consultative uh, Council. And, uh, and Ms. Bouloud Al-Dukhail, uh, has been working in the banking and the investment sector, also with the uh, Chambers of Commerce. The Chambers of Commerce in Saudi Arabia, there are more Chambers of Commerce in Saudi Arabia than there are Chambers of Commerce in all the other 21 Arab countries combined. How's that for a piece of information uh, there in terms of a window on the private sector of, of the uh, country there. And uh, Mr. Uh, Albert Besti uh, is from a country that is superficially uh, and dynamically in direct contrast to many of the realities in Saudi Arabia. Uh, in other words, it's demography uh, is small and limited. And this poses its own strategic opportunities as well as challenges for the Qataris and those who are their friends who are associated with them and their dreams and their aspirations and their goals and their needs and their concerns and their interests. Saudi Arabia, in contrast, has a youth bulge challenge, an unemployment uh, challenge, and the kinds of policies and positions and actions and attitudes that are being formulated to address those challenges. Uh, so with these words as an overview, uh, we've agreed that uh, Mr. Elder Vesti will proceed um, and he will provide us a background, a context, and a perspective upon which uh, Ms. Kalud Elder and her son Mughalega will build the child. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let me let me start by by 
communicate the, the concern, the Arab American concern, to organize this meeting. And I think we also uh, to that for hosting this, uh, this conference. Uh, and thank you for all of you who, uh, who decided to come and join us. Now, this was supposed to be a presentation, but I'm sorry for technical, technical reason we couldn't uh, think it, you know, for securities or something we couldn't access the uh, account here. So, uh, I, I deserve this presentation to give uh, a historical perspective about the GCC economy and with that also their relation with the, with the U.S. Uh, uh, now, GCC economy and the U.S. economy, they transform from being complementing each other in the last 40 years to being right now to competing with each other. And I'm going to go through these things from through the presentation. Uh, now, uh, GCC economy went through three main phases. And now we're going to the fourth one. So the three main phases, uh, the first one was uh, the pre-first Gulf War. I talk about the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now, during that period of time, uh, the relation between GCC and the US was heavily influenced by the supply of oil, which was uh, extremely important for the U.S. and the West. And as we know, the oil is basically the blood of the industrial revolutions. So the U.S., they want to make sure that supply of oil is, uh, is guaranteed from that area. Uh, and also the second part, which was influenced the relation of also uh, the Cold War. I know I'm taking you through history, you know, so, but uh, hopefully most of uh, us here can remember this. So during the Cold War, every country must decide whether to be with the Soviet Union or with the Western. And this <coughs> dynamics basically made made the relation between GCC and the U.S. just uh, everybody was happy, you know. Okay, we're going to use the supply of oil and we're going to be part somehow allied with the, with the Western as opposed to the Soviet Union. So these, these two things were very, very important in the, at the early stages in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Now, the nature of the GCC economy at that time was extremely small, was basically, was no manufacturing, was no services at that time. We used to import everything. I still remember when I was in the elementary school, even the tissues we used to import it from, from Japan, I remember. So everything was important, imported at that time. And basically there was no FDI, foreign direct investment, with the exception in the oil and gas sector. Now, things stay as they are until the, the post-First Gulf War, which is in 1990, when uh, when Saddam invaded Kuwait, and there was a U.S. presence in that area. Uh, with the U.S. presence in that, presence in that area, uh, people became more aware of the necessity of being part of the global or the international communities, politically as well as economically. So uh, uh, as bad as the war was for us, to provide opportunity for the country to, op for most of the GCC country to open, 
to be more familiar with the, with the other countries and uh, to be more educated actually about the, the global economy. And uh, again, as someone warned, this, uh, CNN broadcasted for first time on that area from my country, from the 1990. So even the cable network was not allowed before that, that war. But during the war, things changed completely. Anyway, so now after the war, we stayed for 10 years. Uh, the oil prices was depressed, so the growth was very moderate. Uh, but the economy became start start to become more mature in that area. And with the with the depressed of the oil prices, most countries try to diversify. So they moved to manufacturing. Like in Qatar, we have invested heavily during that period, from 1990 until 2000. We invested in uh, petrochemical industries and upstream manufacturing. Uh, some other countries like uh, Emirates, and especially Dubai, they were more focused on the downstream, to Jabal Ali, the free state areas they have. And same thing happened with Saudi Arabia. They had both like, downstream and upstream. So, so mainly uh, during that period, the, industry, the economy was mainly focused on manufacturing, uh, shipping, financial services, and improvement or operating with the telecommunications, telecom sector. Now, things stay as they are until the tragic for the, the incident of 9-11, that's what, what happened. Now, with the 9-11, that changed the whole dynamics of the relation of, between the U.S. and the Arab countries and DCC specifically. Now, uh, that's, that's the third phase I'm talking about now. Now, in 2001, uh, George W. Bush, he came with a vision that he's going to fight terrorism, he's going to fight extremism with economic growth and with openness. And that was, in my point of view, a brilliant vision. So he, he, he developed the concept of creating a greater American Middle East free trade area. So he wanted to create this common model, free area for between all the Arab countries and the U.S. So their economy, economy will be integrated. And in this way, he believed that he can solve the issue of poverty, issue of the extremism, and issue of that people doesn't have tolerance. Now, unfortunately, you know, this vision was very bright, but the execution wasn't as good as we thought it was going to be. So they started with it. They signed a free trade agreement with Bahrain. When I say there, I mean the, the administration of the George W. Bush. They signed a free trade agreement with Bahrain. They did another one with Oman. They did with Morocco. And they started with Qatar and Emirates. But that was not, somehow, was not completed for, for some reason that uh, I need more time to talk about it, you know, for you to understand later. So, uh, so that, that, that's, that's the dynamics, you know, that, that's the vision of the, the president at that time. Now, during that time, uh, besides this relation with the U.S., the nature of the GCC economy was very positive. Given the high prices of oil, where oil was an average of 
$100 from 2002 until 2015. So this oil revenue were reinvested in the economy, they were reinvested in the infrastructures. So for those who have a chance to, to visit Doha or Dubai, they will really witness the difference in the, that happened in infrastructure in these 15 years. So, so during this period, because the GCC was uh, was advocating their financial regulation, their infrastructure, their their whole economy was going through a positive scheme, and the rest of the Arab countries were not as uh, as powerful as the GCC. So the GCC they basically distanced themselves economically from the the Arab countries. Now, when I say the distance, it wasn't like intention, but that's what happened. I mean, if you go now to a country X, to the Arab country, and then you go to Dubai or to Doha, you will see the difference. It's like uh, going to Mexico or going to New York. I mean, so there's a huge difference between GCC and the other Arab country. So that wasn't the political intention, but that's what happened. You know, when you invest in your, in your economy, you just go and you upgrade your economy much faster than than the rest. So uh, also during that period, because of the opportunities that was created from the oil revenue, we saw more of the is coming in the, in the area. Foreign direct investment started to come in other sectors besides oil and gas. Now all these three phases happened until probably last year or last two or three years. Uh, I'm sorry. Now, the last phase, which is going to be the fourth phase, which we are entering now with the, with the new, I call it the Western uh, nationalistic view, you know, conservative view, uh, which what's happening in the UK and the US. We, we found that uh, the West is being, start to adopt more conservative approach for the immigrations, for the movement of natural persons. So this took us to a fourth phase, I think. Uh, so what we see in the US now, there is uh, much, I mean, I'm gonna mention this because this is uh, this factor created an opportunity for the GCC. Uh, we can see much harder or tough immigration policy in the US. We can see more restricted the movement of natural person. So this created a gap between the US and the rest of the world. And this is going to happen, but probably not in the future. So, uh, at least this is the way people outside the US view the new policy. Uh, now, this, this uh, policy that's being adopted in the US and some other Western country, uh, we see it as an opportunity for the GCC. Uh, as we know, uh, the tough immigration policy impacted mostly the high-tech sector in Silicon Valley in California. And uh, as most of you know, Silicon Valley depends very strongly on foreign talent. Engineering from India, from China, from the rest of the world, they come and they participate. Uh, some of the reading that uh, I made you know, last week, they said almost 50% of, of the new startup in Silicon Valley, they come from abroad. 
Uh, also, they anticipate the U.S. universities will only be able to to graduate 40% of engineering and scientists that's needed for the next 10 years. So there's going to be a huge gap between what what you need to grow the Silicon Valley and the high-tech industries and what exists in the U.S. The gap, I'm talking about the talent, the skill, the, the gap. Uh, with this, I think it's going to be uh, a huge opportunity, not only for GCC, but for many other countries also, to capitalize on this and to create their own version of Silicon Valley. And now, uh, we are doing some studies within our ministry how to take advantage of all of these situations, as bad as they are, but how to take advantage of them and to attract a new startup and a new talent to, to Qatar, and I'm sure you know Emirates and some other countries are doing the same. So, uh, so given the high, given the business restriction that will be created in the U.S., which they are again hard restriction, immigration policy, uh, the working visa that's being restricted more now, uh, traveler screening. You cannot come and leave the U.S. as easy as before, and also given the soft restriction that exists here, which is how foreigner perceive that they will be treated by the U.S. You know, most foreigners now when they come to the U.S., they think, oh, we might, they might not be friendly to us. I didn't see it, but that's perception which exists there. So they said even if we get here, if we work in the U.S., our family, our kids might not be very comfortable in the new environment. So all of these will affect their decisions to come to the U.S. or to go somewhere else. Uh, and these high talents, uh, uh, they are in a very high demand. They can basically choose where they want to go. They can go to Singapore, they can come to Middle East, they can go to Europe, or they can come to the U.S. So, uh, so we we found that there are going to be two things will happen, you know, because of this restriction I mentioned. Some U.S. firms like uh, Google, Amazon, these multi, this huge corporation, multinational corporation. They will allocate more scientists, foreign scientists and foreign engineers to their branches outside the U.S. At the same time, the new startup, which they want to start their business, they will reconsider whether to come to Silicon Valley or to go somewhere else. Now, given our the future of our economy, the GCC, uh, we think we are very strategic, our position is very strategic to attack them. Now, basically in most Middle East, most GCC countries, we adopt very friendly immigration policy. Uh, like in Qatar now, if you have a business idea, you are welcome to come to, to, come to Qatar. Now Qatar, we have like almost now 80% or 75% of foreigners already. They come and leave. They participate in our economy. So most overseas workers, overseas talent, when they come, they don't feel homesick because they have their own communities, and they we are very tolerant to them. Uh, number two, given the proximity of the GCC, we are only three hours from India. And when I mention India, because most of the high-tech engineers and scientists, they come from India. So for India to come to the GCC, it's much easier for them to come to the U.S. 
especially with the, with the current changes in the, in the regulations. So uh, cities like Doha, Qatar, is well positioned as an international city. So people, they wouldn't feel that they are foreigners. Uh, we do now have advanced educational institutions, like in Qatar, we have uh, branches of Texas A&M, we have Carnegie Mellon, these are all American, we have Cornell, all of these colleges, they have campuses in Qatar, and they participated in the research that we have in the, in the science part. Uh, geographical location, you know, Middle East, especially GCC is located between Asia, where, they, where there is very high growth in Europe, so that Education is very important. And the infrastructure which I was talking that was built during the high oil boom is well established. You know, the airports, in terms of the highways, the telecom, all are established. Uh, the regulations is very friendly and the tax regime is very, very attractive. So uh, with this, I want to conclude my presentation by saying I can see, I can witness how GCC and the U.S. being complementing each other, the supply of oil and purchasing manufacturing from the U.S. Now the formula is going to change, you know, they're going to compete. And as a matter of fact, we've already seen it, you know, like even the oil itself that's being produced in GCC is being competing now with the shale oil and in Texas and then the U.S. So they're competing now in the energy sector, they're competing in the aviation, even the airlines, and I think there will be more competition now. And it can be healthy, it can be very positive competition. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Okay, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, the National Council on the U.S. Arab Relations and specifically Dr. John Anthony for hosting us today. I'd like to also thank NASDAQ, and I do feel at home. Uh, we did welcome the CEO of NASDAQ two weeks ago in Saudi Arabia and Faisal University as our guest, and she was extremely inspiring, and we're very happy. Um, thank you. Um, Dr. Anthony just said a few words before we started. He said, I need you to tell them something that you want them absolutely to leave with. So I'm going to start by saying this. Uh, for any of you that know anything about Saudi Arabia in the past, uh, today Saudi Arabia is a different place. This is what I want to leave you with. Um, I'll, I have, there's a write about myself, but I'll tell you briefly. I'm a financial advisor, so I represent the private sector. I'm an investment banker. Uh, I'm the president of the National uh, Council for Statistics, which is a new body among many, many other new bodies as part of the transformation. Uh, but basically, I've been working in the financial sector for 20 years, taking companies public, researching a bit, uh, sinking my teeth into the uh, private sector. Uh, Saudi Arabia today, uh, so if I want to go and say the perspective, what, what, what are we going through today? I say we are going through nothing less than a silent storm. Uh, Everybody is aware of the National Transformation Plan, and I'm sure you've read about it. And uh, it's as great as it sounds. Uh, there are many challenges that we are facing, but I also say market imperfection creates opportunities. Uh, of course, when we are uh, uh, discussing with uh, 
when I'm discussing with Saudis, when we're discussing in the private sector about the things that need to be done, uh, we are all very hopeful. Um, so, and I'm not going to talk about the National Transformation Plan, maybe Dr. Hassan knows more about it, because I'm going to tell you about the little story that happened to us, us meaning the private sector. Um, I, I believe that the significant change in the Saudi society, whether on an economic or social front, really started in 2006 uh, with uh, the late King Abdul. Uh, definitely for women, and I'll talk about women later. First, I'm going to talk about private sector. And um, government expenditures, beginning of reforms, 80% um, of the financial regulations actually came out in the past, uh, in the last eight years. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, the company's law, which was, you know, uh, uh, 1967, was just reissued in 2015, the company's law. Um, we, the financing company's uh, law came out in 2014. Um, the CMA itself, which is the Capital Market Authority, was only established in 2004-2005. Prior to that, everything was uh, done from the central market. The, 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 the central bank, sorry, uh, where everything was centralized, and um, then subsequently we had insurance company, the financing companies. Uh, I'm also the chairman of Forex, which is the largest financing, the second largest financing company, uh, the audit committee, the chairman of the audit committee, and I'm the only Saudi female in that position actually. Anyways. So the financial sector is very developed, and we started. So all these changes actually started with King Abdullah. And then uh, when King Salman came in power, and then, you know, like the rest of the world, everybody was, you know, uh, received uh, last May the National Transformation Plan, and it just really hit us. Uh, from last year until now, in the past 12 months, I can tell you that Saudi has changed dramatically. It's right now, I feel like we're in the middle of a storm. And um, uh, it's a massive workshop of activity. Now, this doesn't mean that the private sector has fully, I mean, I, I know you want, uh, uh, we are, I, say, I always say we're in the middle of the storm, there are a lot of things that are happening, there are a lot of challenges, uh, the, uh, obviously the increased cost that came along with it, the anticipated taxes, all of that, these are things that I think uh, have affected us. Uh, everybody has seen how the market uh, went down 40 or uh, corporate profits have declined 40 or 60%. A lot of companies now are being restructured. Some of them are coming out of the market. Um, eventually, that will be a good thing. So uh, one of the big themes, actually, is the implementation of corporate governance. So the part of the National Transformation Plan uh, is to really implement a strong corporate governance. And one of their main objectives is to improve the efficiency of government. Uh, and we have some. And uh, so uh, that's, that's, that's really going well, I think. Um, now, the private sector, just to give you just some numbers, uh, of course I'm going to focus on Saudi Arabia. I know the GCC is like 52 million people. We have exports of, four, of more than $500 billion. Uh, but uh, I, 60 to 70% of that is really coming from Saudi Arabia. Uh, when I talk about the private sector uh, in Saudi Arabia, and the National Transportation <coughs> Plan really relies on the private sector to move us to the diversification and to take over the privatization, which we which is the role, basically, uh, to improving our uh, economy. Uh, we're talking about uh, one, uh, 1 1.9 uh, million uh, institutions, really. 
of which at least 900,000 are 10 people or less. So we're talking about a really small, thin private sector. Uh, the number of Saudis working, the number of private sector employees are 10 million, of which 1.7 are Saudis, and the women are around 400,000. But we're coming in very fast. And uh, so you, you can see that, so I mean, it is, it is an economy dominant by government, yet. That said, the current political will to transform the country, to transform the country, um, uh, is it will have a significant impact in recreating this private sector and really growing it. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities now across the board. I think all the GCC countries face have faced in the past the same challenges, which is lack of resources, deep education. Uh, um, uh, regulatory environment, and all of this now is being dealt with. We have this long checklist, which is, um, as many have said, could be very aggressive, but you know, we're moving forward. Um, and um, finally, um, I do believe that, uh, again, ma market imperfections create opportunities. Today, Saudi, if I want to leave you with something, uh, uh, Saudi has a strong mandate to bring in international investors. We have always uh, done that, but I think now we are seeing real regulations coming in. In 2015, the qualified investor regulations. We have just launched in February the parallel market, which, by the way, is being supported by NASDAQ. And uh, so um, we currently have 178 uh, companies listed on the stock exchange, and I think we might increase that by 100, another 100. So there's really a lot of opportunities uh, in Saudi Arabia across all sectors, whether it is in education. Last week we were in Boston and there was an investment, uh, there, is an, uh, there was a, a seminar for investment in uh, healthcare, sorry. We are building now the first specialized hospital in the kingdom and there were a lot of people there from Mass Hospital, Houston Methodist, who already exist actually in Saudi. Um, education, investment in education. The government is uh, pulling the private sector uh, for public-private participation. Uh, there is uh, so much reliance and need for the private sector to grow and bring in the know-how and the skill. And this is where the, the foreign investment becomes extremely important. Um, the, uh, the regulatory uh, framework is already in place and it's being improved. Of course, I advise all of you to do uh, the partnerships with locals like any other emerging market when you enter. Um, so wherever you look right or left, the opportunities is there. Uh, Saudi has always, I mean, we, we've had many government uh, uh, agencies really that have, have, that have always had the mandate to promote investment, whether it's Saudi or the Ministry of Commerce, and now technically every Saudi is, is a marketer now for the country. And um, we believe that, uh, I believe personally, and many others, that uh, it, uh, now is the time to invest in Saudi Arabia. And I think I will be doing that. Thank you.
uh, I don't believe that it's a competition between GCC and the United States for various reasons. One of them has to do with, uh, I don't know if uh, you know or heard of, of a very famous economist called uh, John Nash. John Nash said that in any competitive behavior, there must be a loser. And that guy, of course, uh, got uh, received the Nobel Prize and all this. So, and there's, if you want to know more about him, there's a very beautiful movie called The Beautiful Mind. Okay? It's uh, very wonderful. It tells his story more or less. <clears throat> and of course, in economics, there is a very uh, important uh, piece in the game theory called the Nash Equilibrium. Okay? How can people not lose? I mean, so the game, or the name of the game, for us, from my perspective, is that we need to cooperate, okay, not to uh, compete with the United States of America. First, uh, my also, uh, in my estimation, uh, you're talking about a very big, uh, but diversified, developed economy, and you're talking about uh, energy, more or less energy-based economy. So it's, it's different, plus the scale and all this, and scope. Having said that, it's also very important to mention that the six GCC states are going through transformation. I spent the 90s in Doha working for a GCC organization called the Gulf Organization for Industrial Consulting, and there we toured the whole GCC doing studies and uh, uh, collecting data, analyzing data, uh, the, the whole stuff. So when I say not because I'm a Saudi, I know the GCC, but also I, I've done my uh, uh, <coughs> duty as far as going to every other uh, GCC country and know exactly the story inside out, living there and doing research there as part of, of, of the, the GOEX team. Uh, so what you have every other, it's not the Vision 2030 of Saudi Arabia only, but every other GCC country has a vision of its own. It's published, it's available on the net, you can go as you see. They have different goals, but the common goal when you go uh, deep in, in analyzing these visions, you see to diversify the economy away from oil. Not that oil is not important, but the growth, the, the, the biggest uh, uh, issue with oil that we have with oil, that it plays havoc with our economies. It's good and bad. <coughs> Not to burden you with, uh, with lots of statistics, but take the case of Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have a growth there throughout. You know, since we started development until this moment, there's growth, economic growth that is. And the average of that is 5%. But the, the problem is that it's up and down. The, the, the variance is humongous. So that's, that's the issue. So for us the, uh, in the GCC, diversification is the name of the game. Uh, oil uh, will not be, not the, I remember the, the, some of the arguments uh, in the 70s, uh, they were 
there, in some uh, uh, academic circles in the United States, they were talking about the depletion of oil. So they say, okay, how can we depend on these guys? And what they have, they have a, a commodity, and that commodity will be depleted somehow. But of course, uh, Professor Edelman was the, you know, the champion of that. And now the, these days, we're talking about the peak of oil. So, okay, you have a peak, and then it will just, uh, or what you have, it's, uh, it, will, it will regress, that is the, the amount of oil, and uh, then you cannot depend. But both, both arguments are more or less on the extreme. Actually, we need to diversify because it's good for our economy. It, uh, it means uh, sustainability as well. And it means that we will uh, transform from rent-based uh, to a productive-based. That's very important. Everyone, we could not do it for various reasons. One of them, that we did not have the infrastructure. Second, we did not have the educated uh, indigenous population. And third, we did not have uh, the, the uh, productive capacity. If you look at the Saudi economy right now, the GDP, you can divide it three ways. 40% private sector, contributing to the GDP. 40% private sector, 20% government, and the rest is oil. And of course, the share of oil uh, moves up and down depending on the price of oil. But what are the topics now? The, the biggest topic in GCC is the transforming. And the, in order to, to, to transform and to diversify, you need to work with others. We cannot do it alone. Okay? Working with others, early on, we, the, the working of others meant to us bringing people over to work for us. But now also, that's not good enough because what you, are, what you need, you need uh, not only talented people, but you need technology, you need the whole apparatus and the ecosystem. And that's not easy to come by. So for us in Saudi Arabia, the name of the game now is Vision 2030. And Vision 2030 is an extremely tall undertaking. We know. But also we know that we have to change the way we do business and change the way not only relevant directly to business but number of ways for example now say okay what's the number one goal uh, in the saudi vision 2030 it's not economics it's not diversification it's not transformation it's the identity Okay, to enhance and preserve our identity as Arabs, as Muslims. That's, that's to make, to, to be sure who we are. Okay, now number two goal in the vision 2030 is what? It's also not economics per se, it's well-being, the quality of life. And in order to have quality of life, someone, you know, <coughs> we are not talking about oil and we're not talking about exporting importing we are talking about guys yeah really you have to do something about your weight guys you have to walk and you have to exercise this is the quality of life 
meaning that also you need to reduce blood pressure and make sure that everyone is happy in there. Okay? That's very, very, that's becoming a, a very important uh, point of discussion in Saudi Arabia. Never been the case. But when you talk about economics, for us we know that we cannot do it alone. So we are talking about two aspects. One, that we have to work extremely strong uh, in, a in a very diligent manner with our partners. GCC in general and Saudi Arabia in particular, we have a very good network, very elaborate, elaborate network of good relationships with many countries of the, of the globe. Of course, at the top of which is, is the United States. And we think that can be of some good, you know, uh, meaning that uh, that will help us. We, uh, we, we count on the United States to help us in diversifying, to bring economy, to, uh, technology, and uh, in, in various sectors. And that's not a secret. You have to know that Mr. Trump is going to visit us, you know, this day for his first state visit you know, to Saudi Arabia in maybe a couple of weeks. Also, you have to remember that our king, the first visit that he made, state visit, was to the United States. And that was, by the way, heavily uh, on, the, on the economic side. When King Salman came to this city, he talked talk about lots of, of the points that are now very well established in the Vision 2030. Open to business, including, by the way, U.S. banks. Until this moment, we did not see any serious taker. Okay, even though that the that the financial sector in Saudi Arabia is by large the largest in the Middle East, including all Arabs. Needless to say that the, the that the, the when GDP wise, uh, Saudi Arabia is among the uh, the G20. Uh, it's the largest Arab economy in various sectors. It's in GDP and then across the board, in every other sector in the economy, the Saudi economy will drive number one. Saudis are not inward when it comes to to investment. They they are very aggressive investor. They rank number one in all Arabs, you know, when, when in Arab investment in the neighboring Arab countries, Saudis will, will be first. But also, they receive, uh, it's not only that we, need, that we need money and technology, we need something that will contribute to the economy. And this is historically, it's not only, it's not, it's not start now. So you see, but who is, who is investing in Saudi Arabia? China, United States, Belgium, and what have you, Germany. Okay, these are the top. Okay, who exports to Saudi Arabia? Same, you know. You cannot miss, it's the, like the G7 or G8. So the point is that on the agenda there, it's an agenda, our agenda, is an agenda for cooperation, 
for working together. Of course, we in, within the GCC we work extremely uh, uh, hard and in a very meaningful full manner. King, the late King Abdullah has an initiative for like transforming even the GCC from a co the cooperative mode to a union, full-fledged union. Okay, uh, so which is the economic, full-fledged economic integration. Okay, but also we, we, we think that we need to, to depend on our, uh, our friends to build the bridges, and, and that will be a mutual. Uh, we don't think that we can do it alone. So the country is, uh, I'll just echo what my uh, very good friend Khuluk uh, said, that the country is going really through, uh, through uh, a very big uh, transformation when, when, when it comes to uh, receiving the investors in a very directed manner. I'll finish up by saying the following, and to be very specific about the, uh, the new approach for attracting foreign direct investment. Of course, foreign direct investment is a goal. Improving that to 2.7 to to of GDP, FDI, of GDP is a target by need to be achieved by the end of 2030. But the issue is not that only. The issue is the, 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 the very methodology that our <coughs> investment uh, uh, commission, SAGIA, is going after achieving that is, 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 uh, is re, re, revisited in a, in a very major manner. And Prince Mohammed said, Mohammed bin Salman, in the, his latest interviews, okay. what we need now, what we have, we have a like more or less hit list of major companies that we think will complement with our economy, that will help us diversify the economy. So what, what we will do, what SAGA will do, will go after them. Okay, so SAGA will have a, a target. You go out there, give me a, a deal with this company or that company in the in the leisure sector, in the petrochemical sector and education and health in order that will help me diversify the economy. Also at the same same time, in the other direction, because the approach is, is bi-directional, the other direction is we look within, now this is Chris Mohammed, within our economy we have number of uh, very promising <coughs> Saudi companies, okay, say so we'll take the top 100 percent Okay, and these will help to go from being domestic, internal, to be, like, say, regional, GCC, and then, say, Arab. And then for the regional ones that are successful regionally, will take them to be global and will support them. And this way, we'll be able to uh, make it work for Saudi Arabia both ways. As you can see, it's not only, uh, uh, say, uh, transforming away from oil, but I think now we have a roadmap and uh, the whole country is, is trying to work extremely hard for that. And uh, we know in Saudi Arabia that we'll not be able to do it without the help of, of our friends. But also we know internally we'll not be able to do it without the help of our sisters and daughters. So now one of them, by the way, the goals of Vision 2030, because someone might think that Vision 2030 is you know, just uh, sweeping remarks. No. One of the goals of Vision 2030 of to make sure that the participation 
of the Saudi females in the workforce is not less than 30%. Thank you very much. speakers for not only um, providing a, a rich uh, body of information and insight, uh, knowledge, and helping us uh, in our understanding, uh, but realizing uh, the audience uh, to which they're making their remarks. Uh, we mentioned about um, America having the reputation, uh, well earned, of being empathy deficit uh, but these individuals have lived and worked here too, uh, not just in their own countries in the immediate uh, neighboring region. Uh, maybe one or two of you would like to comment or correct uh, this statistic, uh, but there is a well-known Saudi Arabian who um, studied here, uh, did his PhD on the image of the Arab in America's media, and he has estimated that the number of Saudi Arabians who have uh, completed all or significant part of their higher education in the United States is a minimum of 300,000. And I think if you were to add the um, ones in Qatar and Bahrain, uh, Kuwait, Oman, and the Emirates, um, uh, we're we're approaching um, a million uh, GCC country Arab citizens who have obtained their higher education here. Uh, lots of Thanksgiving uh, dinners and rubber chicken and uh, things like that. Now, the number of Americans who have obtained um, all or almost all of their higher education in Saudi Arabia and the other five GCC. See, countries is an impressive statistic. Uh, you probably never heard of it before, but if you round it off to the nearest uh, highest number, it is zero. Okay. So uh, we're talking about symmetries, asymmetries, uh, imbalances, and the like. How uh, greater an imbalance can one imagine? It's not just imagination. This is reality than that. Um, of course, Cutter is uh, pioneering in this um, by having um, seven or eight full-fledged American four-year campuses uh, in Doha. And I've been to the inauguration of all of them. <clears throat> and uh, I've seen with my own two eyes that the standards are the same for admission and the curricula's uh, richness and excellence. Take the Cornell Medical School, for example. Sanford uh, Wheel himself, who helped to endow it, um, himself raised about it. Says any of these admitted here would be admitted uh, to the main campus in Ithaca, New York. Uh, uh, the questions here are quite rich, and I will try to synthesize them and still take some from you. Um, uh, you have some paper, 
to scribble them on. Um, but the um, first one would be, and all three of you can comment, uh, but we're limited by the non-portability of the microphones. So you'll have to come up here if you would like to uh, answer uh, th uh, these questions uh, and have a comment. As a matter of fact, I think um, if all of you would stand up here because you're going to have to come up here anyway, yes. and uh, then you can just lean forward and, and uh, use the microphones here. Um, what are the chances? Uh, what are the obstacles? What are the facilitative factors to um, register progress on a pan-GCC U.S. free trade agreement? Or if not that, then a way station toward it. So there's a um, trade and investment uh, framework um, that all six or five of the six would adhere to. Um, and which countries are the laggard ones? Uh, say, count us out. Um, the specific Oman's representatives have said, if you're talking about union, count us out. Um, we're all into the cooperation side. You've had this challenge before with your electricity grids, uh, harmonization and linking. And uh, rather than insist on all six, you reached an agreement where four could do it. And uh, the two others could come on later, um, which uh, was quite impressive. Um, so that's the first question, and then the answering to it, of it. Um, of course, if you read the GCC's charter and preambles, this is one of the goals to increase intra-GCC economic cooperation. How's it going? These two questions rolled into one having to do with pan-GCC economic opportunities, challenges, successes, and setbacks or shortcomings. Please come up. Uh, this will be creative on our side here, yes. Okay. So, uh, the issue of the FTA or the integration of the GCC with the rest of the world is very interesting. Uh, because all GCC uh, had adopted a policy to negotiate an FTA collectively. So, you cannot negotiate with Qatar or Saudi Arabia or one country. You have to do it with the whole of them as a group. Now, with the exception of the U.S. Now, U.S. is the only country that was granted the right by GCC to negotiate bilateral with each country. Now, this is because uh, this is some technical problem because Bahrain, they already started the negotiation before this policy was adopted. So they said, okay, I the GCC with the U.S. each one can negotiate by itself. So that's why we see Bahrain and Oman, they signed an agreement, a free trade agreement. And when I say if you are aware of the FTA, it's mean like uh, no tariffs, no custom duties for the products between both countries, uh, liberalizing uh, 
almost 95% of the services sectors, banking, insurance, telecom, and also government procurements. Now, I know, I know for sure countries like Qatar who are willing to, to negotiate and to conclude an FTA with the U.S. But the issue is uh, with the U.S., not with us. I think uh, politically here it's much harder to pass uh, something with FTA through the Congress. Uh, I know that uh, President George W. Bush was able to do it at that time because of the 9-11. He, he had this authorization from the Congress, so he negotiated that was given a specific time. But we couldn't do it. Uh, now, personally, I think uh, if we can sign an FTA, it's going to be great, great thing to to help us. You know, uh, if I can take you back, even since you talk about the challenges and the chances. Um, uh, now, we use uh, the Ministry of Economy. We use the argument of the FTA because we did start it, started a TIPA agreement and like a pre-FTA with the US. And the US they ask us to to liberalize and to reform the financial sector, the telecom sector. There are so many areas that we're supposed to do it. So we use the, argue to, uh, the argument of the, the F FTA to push the agenda within Qatar, because most of the private sector in Qatar, they oppose to have a U.S. banks or foreign banks to come and compete with them. So we said, no, we're going to do an FTA with the U.S. So we use this argument to reform our regulations. So it's going to be much easier for us now to adopt uh, an FTA than, than even before. Now, the chances, again, I know that some countries within GCC, like Saudi Arabia, I think it's going to be it's hard, you know, it wouldn't be easy. Now, because they're given the size of their economy and because the Saudi, they have like, their own industrial policy, you know, they want to support specific industry, they want to do. And it's a huge market, so it's not easy for them to decide as much as for Qatar or for, for the Emirates. Uh, now, uh, again, uh, some countries, I think you can have very successful uh, FTA with them. But the Congress and the U.S., whether, whether they will approve this or not, I'm not sure. Now, uh, we have also, beside the FTA, we have something uh, called investment protection agreements. Uh, also, we don't have any investment protection agreement with the, with the U.S. Qatar didn't have, America didn't have. The only country which has is the uh, and Bahrain, which was part of their I'm not sure about the Saudi they have or not. And one of the reasons, again, because the U.S. usually they impose very tough standards in their FTA and their protection agreement that other countries usually cannot respond to it positively. Yes, thank you. Ms. Kalu, would you like to add Hassan? Thank you. I'll uh, very briefly on the second question. Uh, I think uh, the GCC will move from uh, states, will move from uh, cooperation to uh, uh, full-fledged economic integration with time. See, early on, all the six uh, GCC states had uh, surpluses. Uh, things are different right now. They cannot, all of them, invariably, they cannot move forward in a, to diversify their economies without opening up and play it efficiently. 
meaning that easy money is not there anymore. So what you need to do, you need to work extremely hard to at, attract foreign investment, but foreign investment alone will not do the trick. You need infrastructure. And you need to have that infrastructure invested in, in a very efficient manner. For example, the, the, the point that was uh, mentioned by, by John regarding, say, having a, a, a GCC electricity grid. This, is, this makes perfect sense, sure. So we are going to have it. Now we are, you know, arguing and been arguing for decades in order to have it. We'll have it. We'll have, a, I think, a, a natural gas grid. We will have lots of things also. We'll work t together as an economy, but gradual. So it will be there not for political reasons, but for economic and efficient reasons. Thank you. Thank you. The audience may not be fully aware that from 1987 uh, until 2008, uh, there were annual negotiations, discussions between the European Union and the GCC countries uh, seeking the same objective. But in fairness and accuracy, correct me if I'm wrong, the, it was the EU that kept moving the goalpost. Uh, that was an understanding at the beginning that uh, non-interference in one another's domestic affairs is off limits. And um, the GCC honored it from its side. The uh, EU did not. And um, that uh, brought this to a halt. Now we have a Congress here that uh, talks about putting all kinds of restrictions on various trade uh, with um, Saudi Arabia in particular, but by implication it impacts all of the GCC countries, especially when it has to do with advanced defense cooperation and uh, technology. So um, that's just um, a background and context. It will not necessarily be easy uh, or smooth, even if the logic is sound. And the facts will sound. Uh, don't discount the media uh, responsible to advertisers and its own ideology, <clears throat> not favoring any closer U.S.-Arab <clears throat> relationship, especially with influential countries such as those in the GCC. So there's not really a presence here to counter these um, obstacles. But as uh, Hassan says, gradually, 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 the better argument uh, will have a greater chance of winning than a weak argument or no argument. Um, what would any of you say come to your mind as win-win, near-term poss possibilities uh, in enhancing the economic and trade and investment component of the GCC countries' relations with the United States. We have one from Professor Burl Self, who asked that one look at uh, Singapore and the free trade agreement uh, there, and how relevant <clears throat> might it be as an example to build upon or to make reference to for how we go forward on the U.S. GCC side. And as with other free trade agreements, there are oftentimes exemptions. 
the uh, developing countries said, look, um, we're just beginning. There's no way we can compete with you uh, on this, that, and the other for a while, a good while. So can we not put that commodity on the table? Uh, would any of the three of you care to answer the questions implicit in this? What are the near-term win-win uh, things that come to your mind, and why, and maybe also how? And uh, the Singapore relevance there, if Dr. Self wants to embellish that, please feel free to do so. And Mr. and Professor Nakshbandi from American University's Kolud uh, School of Business, um, uh, who asked to compare the relative visions, differences, similarities, merits, challenges of the visions in Qatar and Saudi Arabia, and how they might impact negatively or otherwise or not at all <clears throat> on the visions of Oman, the UAE, Bahrain, and Kuwait. Yes, what's a near-term win-win uh, thing that comes to mind, if any? Of course there are many. Okay, <laughs> just uh, I say that um, uh, the perception of risk is really based on lack of knowledge. I think that um, uh, I would ask uh, any potential investor, individuals or institutions, to really seek knowledge on the Saudi market or the GCC market. Uh, market. Um, the largest, but the opportunity really lies in all the GCC. And uh, whether reaching out to organizations like the Saudi Arabian uh, Investment Authority uh, or directly through reaching out to investment advisors such as us or NGOs or the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, Council, National Council or the U.S. Arab uh, Foundation here. Uh, just uh, make a decision to have an interest in that area, uh, read about it, uh, directly contact people. Uh, we are definitely in a mode to receive investors. Uh, we are uh, ourselves looking for a lot of strategic partners to partner in all the various industries. Uh, um, a lot of the, I think, 80 uh, areas have been identified for government privatization. The magnitude and scope of areas that require partnerships, uh, uh, capacity building, the transfer of knowledge is humongous. Wherever you turn, whether you're interested in education, healthcare, renewable energy, digital economy, whatever it is, we have, uh, there is a need for partners at all levels. So maybe that's answering the first question. You said something about uh, I don't think I can talk about the uh, you said comparing the vision. Yes, uh, yeah. uh, Saudi Arabia's and yeah. Qatar's are represented here. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, perhaps a UAE listener yeah. may be trembling, yeah. thinking, my goodness, <laughs> if they get their act together, we're done. Um, where are the complementarities, similarities, identicalities that uh, could uh, lessen? Uh, the perceived uh, paranoia that uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, because of their extraordinary economic resources and other advantages, might overtake the dynamism currently underway in 
Okay. The other four GCCs. Uh, just uh, say a few words. I don't think that the national transformation plans of any of the countries are a zero-sum game. I think the pie is big enough, and I think the objective is really to develop the societies inward. I can speak about our transformation plan, and it's really a strategic development plan, and um, whether it focuses on developing the society, uh, as the well-being, as Dr. Hassan said, or number two, the uh, economic uh, uh, improvements, uh, number one, dealing with unemployment, uh, participation of the private sector, uh, privatization, increasing the investments uh, of the country, diversification. I think all of these themes are beneficial to each and every country. And if we work to improve these, which we are, we will all benefit as a block. So I don't see really the competition. On the contrary, I think we need to work towards economic integration, as Mr. Khalid has convinced me today. Thank you. I'll just say this. <laughs> don't go away. No, no. Just a second. <laughs> uh, half the audience, if not more, uh, is uh, women. Okay. And um, as I mentioned before, behind every great woman stands a mediocre fellow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what role uh, will women play in the next 10 years in the economic plans for the GCC countries? Um, any blazing success stories in addition to yours? People like Rubno, Orion, and, and uh, that's a long list, but it's not telling. And the images, um, if you go 20 miles, no, 12 miles from Washington right now, and I speak to secondary school students, uh, the women will ask this kind of question. Sure. Uh, why should I go there the way you treat women? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. I guess since I'm from Saudi Arabia, this is, this is the number one question that I've always been getting since 2006. I would talk about the financial sector for an hour. I thought I was impressing them. And then the first question is, why don't women drive? And I say, that's a good question. I need to know the answer myself. Anyways, uh, that said, honestly, uh, as I said in the beginning of my speech, uh, the city, today Saudi is different. We are in the middle of a transformation. And women uh, issues are also, I mean, just a few days ago, we had even another uh, decision kind of liberalizing some of the things. Yes, there is a bad perception. Uh, but it's not that we're not treated well, by the way. So um, uh, we are treated well, each to his own, in our own context. But uh, definitely, uh, women participation is, is detrimental. They are um, half of the society. Do I need to make a case? We are, from an economic point of view, we are capital that has not yet been used. And this actually creates uh, opportunities. Now, uh, in 2006, when King Abdullah took power, um, I mean, it's just 11 years ago when women were suddenly allowed to enter buildings, by the way. And I just want you to put things into context. The Saudi society, women were not working. It wasn't part of our uh, agenda. I don't know, maybe we're young generation. But I was from the very first to work. And every day I'd go to the bank. This was in 97. They'd tell me, you're in the wrong building. There are no women here. And I was like, yeah, I'm working here. So we faced all of these challenges. But these days are over. Now uh, we have a chairman of the stock exchange, we have a CEO of a bank, we have a CFO of a bank, the largest investment bank in the region, the CEO, the lady. Uh, I was appointed chairman of the national committee, which is the first time, um, and the ball is rolling very fast. Now there is definitely 
recognition now, and it's a function of several things. Uh, uh, education of women, a shift in the mindset of families. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, I had a lot of men come up to me say, can you find jobs for my sister or my wife, but they need to be in isolated today. The same people are coming to say, please let them work anywhere, let them travel. People, women are posted now outside. So the, the, um, the shift in the mindset of the families, that was a factor. Education of, of women, that's another factor. Uh, today, myself, I'm lobbying for promoting women in senior positions. And honestly, I can tell you that uh, I don't want to say it's easy, but uh, it's been received with open arms. And actually, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, the government agencies now have um, plans to include women. Um, and maybe if you follow the media, I, I can't keep up actually with the announcements that they're coming. So it's a choice. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, Hassan, you can maybe address uh, you. Um, I've got to reframe the uh, questions about uh, Singapore, nor there is a solid uh, model uh, from which to um, study and benefit, make reference, and comparing um, the other transformations that occurs in Saudi Arabia's and their impact on the UAE and the other three countries beyond the UAE not represented here today. Uh, I don't know, uh, with all due respect, I don't agree with the question. I mean, uh, when I go to Dubai, uh, I feel uh, extremely flattered and happy that Dubai is part of the GCC and Dubai succeeded in diversifying its economy. This is something, this is an experience that we think that proves the, the very point that we are trying to, uh, to make uh, throughout the GCC, that it's not only oil that we can make it. In Dubai, uh, they're our brothers, so just same. Same expanse of land, so. Qatar, why should we mention only Dubai? I mean, Dubai is good, very good example, but look at also Qatar. Qatar, in very few short years, transformed its education system. It's one of the best globally. It surpasses a ranking that of the United States. They did it. It's, it's, Someone will say, oh, okay, yeah, sure, they uh, paid this university a billion and that university a billion and they convinced them to come over. No, no, it's not only that. Look at the public education now, okay? The KG to 12, and see, there you'll see uh, something worth uh, reading about. And uh, So I think it's all over. In Saudi Arabia, the success, the biggest, of course, in addition to oil, is our manufacturing, non-oil manufacturing sector. It's the second to none in the region. We are the manufacturers in the region. We have thousands of and upon thousands of factories. People are working there. And uh, some one well, to name just one, uh, we have Sabic. Sabic uh, no matter how you look at it, it's uh, the top five uh, petrochemical companies. It started in, in the commodity petrochemicals, but uh, 
Let's move now to uh, to a specialty petrochemicals, uh, and also we have Aramco is moving to be a, a well-rounded, so to speak, uh, also energy company, energy and manufacturing company, and uh, they got into bed with uh, with Dow Chemicals, and they have now uh, Sadara, also a very leading specialty chemicals. So we can go on and on and on. So but now. The focus for the next, say, 10 years is going to be services. That's the name of the game. And part of our transformation, because we are weak when it comes to services, that's the biggest trick. We are weak when it comes, say, to uh, tourism and travel, uh, and, you know, as contributors to our GDP and leisure as contributors to GDP. Okay? We have all of, all of the GCC, high usage of investment expenditure on IT. But we are not making any advances in that. Uh, part of the Vision 2030 uh, in Saudi Arabia is the uh, National uh, Digital Transformation Program. And in there also there are a number of uh, fantastic opportunities for technology companies. Thank you. Uh, don't, don't go away. Okay. Uh, then a couple of others for you. Um, we hear that so many phrases and they're not defined or uh, no one seems to say, here's what I mean. Uh, transform, transfer to a knowledge-based economy. How do you do that? What is it? What would it look like That's for you? And you mentioned your uh, work and service for years in the 90s at the Gulf Organization for Industrial Consultancy, GOIC. Um, thank God you've mentioned that because in so many sessions, when that comes up, people's eyes glaze over. They don't know it, whether it's an animal, vegetable, or a mineral. <laughs> there. But if I'm not mistaken, it's existed since 1976. It did have Iraq as a member at one point. Uh, but when Iraq did what it did to Kuwait, it uh, was expelled. Um, the studies, the research, uh, by now are massive. Um, please tell us more what it's done, uh, how relevant is it now, and is it a go-to, must-visit place? It's right there on the Corniche in Doha, there, uh, for visitors who go to Qatar. Um, if they don't know about it, they won't take it seriously into their consideration. Um, and the third question related to that is how would you quantify intra-GCC economic uh, cooperation and integration? Uh, those are three questions that are specifically for you. And then I'm going to ask Mr. Elder Van Presley if he would comment as well, being from Qatar. Okay, thank you, John. Uh, the knowledge-based economy, of course, uh, where you have the, the major contributor uh, technology is uh, not uh, based on, uh, on a natural resource uh, per se, but uh, depends on the, uh, the uh, innovation and uh, the, uh, the human development of the, of the processes. Uh, that particular issue is also uh, high in the agenda uh, throughout the GCC. As I mentioned earlier, it's part of the 
of the vision for you, where we have a program relevant to the digital uh, digital transformation. And digital transformation to us means uh, better uh, to improve the efficiency of government and also to uh, to create jobs by having uh, more local content when it comes to uh, IT-based or ICT-based uh, kind of projects, uh, which is also very important. So uh, I, I, early on, I mentioned the head list, and now on the head list, of course, number of leading uh, IT and cybersecurity and so on and so forth companies. Uh, also, uh, groups in Saudi Arabia are looking at the uh, fourth uh, uh, revolution, industrial revolution, quote-unquote. And as we know, that that is based on ICT, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, and there is a very big move toward that. Uh, now we are becoming, now to that we need to, to move into, uh, into efficiency we are very uh, cautious with uh, just you know asking people expects to come to come along because sometimes that's uh, not economical. So moving toward uh, uh, using uh, people or expects uh, employing employing them to uh, bridge the gap and shortages of, of our own. Like in human resources and robotics and uh, adopting more efficient uh, uh, ways to, to manufacture and to produce any uh, good or service is also high. And we witnessed that already, by the way, over the course of last year. So we've done extensive, my firm, Juwata Consulting, extensive studies regarding uh, having to do with uh, the impact of the reforms on the private sectors, including the foreign investors, and uh, here relatively regarding like the use of energy and so on and so forth, and uh, people are trying to be more efficient. And uh, as Khulud uh, mentioned, so that like, number of uh, what we noticed also that number of companies in the private sector are restructuring. Uh, so uh, because of the impact, so the government said, well. Uh, you have to work uh, smarter and you have to pay market prices for the utilities and that's the way it's going to be. So, okay, uh, <coughs> dealing with that reality, so uh, companies started to, uh, to be uh, more uh, efficient in using the resources. Of course, companies, just like human beings, uh, some, some of them are uh, fast movers and some of them are laggards and stuff like that, that, like that but by time, everyone would get the message. Uh, the second question. Uh, regarding Goic, Goic is a fantastic place. You don't have to go to Doha, by the way. It's strategically, as John said, strategically located on the, on the Cornish. And uh, I had, uh, uh, during my tenure there, some of the best views, like, you know, with a very big window looking at. So, like, just whenever there's something that with, with work pressure or some colleague telling me uh, dull stuff, I would just look at the, the Arabian Gulf and enjoy myself. So it's, it's a very, but you don't have to go to Doha to benefit from, from, uh, from the services of GOIC. Just visit their GOIC uh, uh, website. It's very rich in data and uh, they have a number of uh, very uh, uh, careful, carefully uh, 
selected and designed events uh, in technology and economics and so on and so forth. And what they do, they do annual uh, or biannual actually uh, workshop promoting new uh, uh, manufacturing or industrial opportunities throughout the Gulf. So they have like say 10 or 15 of these opportunities. They prepare profiles on them and then they take them to Oman and to say Doha or Riyadh or uh, Kuwait. Uh, so uh, I, I really encourage you to visit the website and you'll see it's, uh, it's uh, very rich in, in da both data and other content as well. The last question. That's it. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, what was, how would you quantify inter-GCC country um, cooperation? It's very uh, limited, very short thing. Uh, yes, yes. Okay, uh, the, that third question is, uh, is uh, I don't know, it's very challenging and very difficult to answer because uh, still, uh, when you look at uh, trade and uh, the interdependencies, uh, uh, among us, the GCC states still very limited. Uh, but what we are witnessing that uh, with time now opening up, for example, the opening up of the uh, of the economies, more uh, companies are interested, for example, to come to Saudi Arabia. So even when you look at the uh, the the countries that that uh, invest like FDI wise private investment uh, coming into Saudi Arabia, UAE will, will rank high, okay? And you see some of the big retailers in Saudi Arabia coming from Kuwait, like Shire from Kuwait. Uh, this guy or this company, Kuwaiti company, is just taking over almost all of our malls, you know? <laughs> okay, and uh, you have other examples as well. So uh, things are improving with time, uh, but the inter-trade is still, uh, it's, uh, you're talking very, uh, Humble number you cannot uh, compare it with, say, uh, Europe, the, the EU, for example, uh, due to a number of reasons. Because one of them, one of them is we have very similar, uh, uh, like economic structure and manufacturing base right. forward, and also exports um, in terms of hydrocarbon fuels. Uh, all of you uh, do that. And um, you have an abundance of it, so you don't need to exchange that with each other. And uh, it's not should not be surprising. And likewise with uh, the Arab North African countries, in uh, Tunisia, Libya, and Algeria, um, and their relations with France, um, which still are robust and dynamic and bilaterally uh, far more significant than anything. Uh, with each other. Uh, so the geography is a determinant there. Um, but about the Pan-GCC Railway, railway uh, what are your thoughts about it? What, how will it transform, if at all, the uh, GCC countries' economies? And there are individuals in debate who um, have indicated to me that the uh, ports uh, in Dofar, the southernmost uh, province of Oman, when and if Oman gets its infrastructure, administrative uh, investment situation um, in order, we in, the, in Dubai will lose at least 20% of what we have now. And others say certainly a minimum of 10%. 
Uh, now that's rather profound. Um, but can you, um, Mr. Albert Festig, address some of these questions? The work is in Qatar, where you are, and um, there's some questions about what's needed in terms of legal reforms in the GCC countries to further foreign direct investment. And you might say external legal realities, because Qatar has an abundance of natural gas, and Kuwait's industry would benefit from uh, increased uh, imports of natural gas. But their legal territorial boundaries, geopolitical obstacles, that have prevented that thus far. So what about legal reforms? What are the main ones that are needed further? Uh, you've had in Saudi Arabia some 42 in order to get into the World Trade Organization, uh, one by one, uh, but you did it. Um, so legal reforms, domestic and external. Um, Stock exchange in Saudi Arabia. Uh, how will the Vision 2030 impact the stock exchange? These are the remaining ones, and then we'll bring it to a close. Um, we've got some great questions here. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, now, in terms of the legal reforms, I mean, uh, one, one of the biggest challenges within GCC is that each country has its own legal framework. So it's not like Europe. Now, Europe, they make their common market, now all of them, they follow the same regulations. I'm talking about the banking sector, the telecom, the airline sector, all they have the same regulations. Unfortunately, GCC, we usually, the GCC, they issue like guidelines for the reform, but we do not have a common uh, regulation for, for, for all the countries. Now, however, uh, some country, I mean, they, they already took the lead, the reform of their economic system, and I'm talking especially about Qatar and, uh, and Emirates, the way. Uh, one of the things we did, to, for example, to upgrade our, our financial regulations, we created Qatar Financial Center. And uh, we had so much difficulty with the Central Bank of Qatar to upgrade their regulations and to bring it to the international standard, but they always resist to do these things. So what we did, we created Qatar Financial Center, and that the whole regulations was like up to the international standards, and it was adopted, and banks started to open. And then that regulation somehow gradually transferred to the Central Bank. Now, uh, same thing with Dubai. Dubai, they created something called the uh, Dubai Financial Center, which I'm sure you are aware of. That also has its own regulations, its own, its own monitoring systems. So uh, the issue, again, the issue of regulations is very important, but uh, most of the regulation in uh, talking about Qatar Emirates is all very friendly for partners. They are, uh, they are like, uh, very close to the international standards. And FDI, when they decide to come, usually they see opportunities. You know, the opportunity exists; they do come. Uh, and I know, I know for sure that opportunity exists, especially in like 
üstentileg szaudiaik, de ez úgy Can I come in one of the questions about uh, when, when you ask uh, that situation where we can have more integration between U.S. and, and GCC? How can we create more integration between these two economies? Maybe uh, comment on the Kafala system for those people who are Yeah, well, Kafala system, I think it's, it's like it's misperceived, uh, you know, because Kafala system is like the the VH1 visa in the, in the U.S., you know. When you issue now here in the U.S., uh, as you are well aware, there is like every, I think, the issue about 100 to 150 VH1 visa. That's for temporarily talents people to come and work, but they do not enjoy residence, and they come temporarily and they leave. We have similar things, you know, we have similar things. So Kepala basically, if a company needs specific like labor force, they can put this Kapala system, so they come in that visa, they work with, with a specific standard, okay, and then when the job is finished, they can leave, of course. So it's, it's not like, uh, I think it's misunderstood. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's very similar again, they print them. I mean, you guys, if you are from California, maybe you'll be more aware of it. In California, they use it for agriculture, they use uh, this immigrants for, for other sectors, that's the issue. But you know what, I think one, one of the challenges we need to, to address, you know, if I can add, you know, yes. uh, I think, you know, to have real economic integration between two nations, you need to have one of the two. You need to have common values, and with these common values, the economic integration come as a supplement to it. Or the second thing, you need to have real economic interest. And what that economic interest basically force you to have this economic integration. Now, I'll give you an example now. Now, if we see the first case where you have common values, and with that value, you create this integration. I mean, you can see it in GCC, or you can probably see it between, I don't know, between like, probably European themselves. You know, they have common values, so they created this integration. Now, the second case, when you, when you have real economic needs, uh, is like, we see the economic ties between China and the U.S. Now, I think the biggest trade between two countries is between China and the U.S., and they do not share the same values. But because there is real economic needs, they do create this integration. Now, the problem with this that as soon as these interests goes, now they divorce immediately. Now, uh, our concern, same thing might happen between U.S. and uh, Arab country, the GCC, you know, I was mentioning about the oil, you know, so oil was necessity for the, for the U.S. So regardless of the values of the GCC and the Arabs, no, the Americans, they want this economic right because they need the oil. Now, as they don't need the oil, things might change. And these are one of the challenges that we need to address and how to, to incorporate this. So even if there is no oil, still we need to have economic integration. Uh, the biggest challenge also for us here, uh, to go to economic integration, to go to FTA, and to create this common market between the Arab and the US, is these are usually politically driven. You know, without, without political will, these things never go forward. You know, you can never have an FTA with a country if there is no political will. Now, uh, 
The problem I see in the U.S. is the perception of the U.S. about the Arab world. Now, we cannot deny that the perception is very negative, extremely negative. So it doesn't help any politicians to take a picture with Arab leaders. You know, it doesn't help the politician to go and say, no, I'm going to do this economic integration with an Arab country. You know, that, that's a fact. We cannot, we cannot deny it, you know. If somebody stood in the front of the RP that the future might not be elected to the US because the perceptions here that these are not the nice guys, not the good guys. So the challenge I think we need to, to work on these soft issues, you know, to change the perception about the Arab country. Thank you. Well, we've had an extraordinary exchange here and a cerebral massage after all. And um, our speakers have been knowledgeable, forthright, uh, candid, uh, humorous, um, open-minded, and um, receptive. And uh, we've all learned a lot. Please join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you.